Today's Bible reading will be from Philippians 3, verses 1 to 16. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So I more so circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss. For the excellence of, of, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered and the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings beings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if, any, if, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. morning. Before we get into the passage, uh, this looks like a new, is this a new podium? Oh, okay. I don't feel uh, very comfortable. Hopefully it won't fall on the kids over here, but anyway. Um, or I don't fall on the kids. <laughs> I tend to move around a little bit. So I just want to uh, a- encourage everybody, uh, you know, we're going to look at Philippians 3 this morning, but, uh, you know, one of the things that we really encourage, especially the young people to do, is to, is to get involved in, um, you know, uh, in uh, the various uh, matters of the church. So one of the simple ways to do that is by, by helping us to set up, uh, you know, the, the setup team which sets up the the place before the meeting and cleans up afterwards. Um, and, uh, you know, lately we seem to, although we have so many people, so many more people, it seems like very few are really committed to that. It's the same people who have been doing it for many years. So uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, it'd be good if more of you can make, you know, you've got to come a little bit early on Sundays and stay a little bit later. Um, uh, but it is a good service and it's not just about getting things done, but it's also in terms of growing, uh, you know, in your relationship with uh, others in the church and and having that uh, that uh, uh, you know fellowship with with others that right, gives you an opportunity to do that so I encourage all of you uh, young men in particular to please uh, uh, 
do volunteer for that. Uh, John Paul, uh, Brother John Paul is uh, responsible for that area. Please do see him and uh, make yourself available for that. Okay. So we're uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we've been making our way through the book of Philippians. And, uh, you know, it's taken us a while to get to chapter, get through the first two chapters. There's only four chapters in this book. It's a very short, small book. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a very rich book. Uh, this passage today that we're going to look at is, uh, is uh, especially rich. And uh, um, if, if I was to summarize uh, what um, the... Uh, uh, the theme of this, uh, this passage, Philippians 3, uh, verses 1 to, we're going to look at 1 through 14 today. You know, it's really about what should be the goal of every Christian, or the goal of every Christian life. And uh, that's what we're going to eventually get to as we get to the latter part of this, this portion. But just to recap a little bit, the book of Philippians was uh, written to the church in Philippi, of course, as the name would suggest. And this was a church that Paul had started um, on his second missionary journey. Um, you know, somebody sent out a, a little thing on the WhatsApp uh, yesterday. Uh, I, I, maybe a couple of the groups, it was there about Paul's missionary journey. You guys see that? Yeah, it was pretty nice. Huh? It gives you an idea of how much time Paul spent going around the churches and, um, you know, that, that part of it. And you see that it was really Paul's effort that took you know, when, when, when the Lord departed, you know, he um, gave this command to the disciples that you are to, uh, you know, take the gospel to Judea and Samaria, you know, to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And it was really Paul almost single-handedly along with a few others like Barnabas and some of his companions like Timothy and Titus and, and John Mark and Luke and others that, that really, but, but really spearheaded by Paul uh, that took that gospel out into Asia Minor and then from Asia Minor into Europe and, uh, and we know that, you know, that's what happened. Like all of Europe literally became, uh, uh, you know, became uh, uh, Christianized, you know, through that. And of course, you know, a lot of other things happened later on in history, but, uh, but that was uh, uh, just a, uh, amazing pioneering work that Paul did. And, uh, and you notice in the, in the missionary journeys how he keeps going back to the same places. So it's like the first time he went, he established some churches. The second time he went, he established some churches. But every time he went around, he would, he would go back to these churches that, uh, that he would... Um, can I ask you guys to stop messing around with paper? Okay, please. It's very distracting. All right. Um, so uh, he would go around to encourage these churches... And, um, and, and build them up in the faith. In some places he would establish elders and, uh, and, and so on. So, uh, and somewhere along this process, Paul ended up in prison. And from the prison, he writes these four epistles, okay, to the Ephesians, the Colossians, Philemon, um, and of course, the Philippians. And th- these were written during his imprisonment in Rome uh, that we read about in Acts chapter 28. And... Uh, you know, Paul has a lot of good things to say about the Philippian church. He, he uh, talks, talks of them as a giving church. He commends them on their, uh, on their contribution, their financial sacrifice towards the work of the gospel. He commends them on being a suffering church. And yet they were a church with some problems. And we looked at these in the first couple of chapters. And the problems were around unity and togetherness. There was some division in the church. We'll come back to that uh, in chapter 4 when we get there where we see some specific believers being called out for their lack of unity. 
Um, but throughout it all, we find that Paul comes back, and we're going to look at this a little bit today. Uh, he comes back to this theme of rejoicing in the Lord. And his instruction to them is to keep on rejoicing in the Lord. And then, um, you know, in order to give them a, an example of what humility is in, in verses uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, Paul takes a little detour to present to them the mind of Christ. And uh, putting it in context, he wants them to look at the mind of Christ because that is the mind that the believers in the church are to have. A mind of humility, a mind of unity, a mind of, uh, if we can just go back to, to uh, refresh our memories here, uh, chapter 2, Philippians 2 and verse uh, 2, it says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. And he then goes on to present this wonderful example of the humiliation of Christ followed by the exaltation of Christ as the, as the example that, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that he presents to them uh, of the mind, the kind of mindset that we as believers ought to have. And then once he's through with that in chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul returns back to, this, uh, to his appeal for unity and uh, he, uh, he appeals to them, if we can turn to uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, um, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So this concept of working out your own salvation, the concept of sanctification, we looked at that. This is what our camp theme was about. You know, there's a part that God has to play and there's a part that we have to play. And we were reminded by Brother John Kurian that uh, very beautifully illustrated it, that, that you know, what, uh, uh, what we can do, God does not do. What we cannot do, that's what God does. But we have a part and uh, the Lord has a part to play. And, uh, you know, in this entire section... Paul is appealing to the church community in how they are to interact with each other, that they are to grow, they are to live blameless and innocent lives before the world without complaining at their circumstances. And so he goes on with that. And then in the latter part of chapter 2, we looked at a couple of examples of uh, exemplary believers. And he presents to us the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus who uh, almost came to death in service to the Lord. So we see throughout this, this theme of walking in the light, this theme of serving the Lord, the theme of unity and humility um, and uh, togetherness and being of one mind. And so with that, Paul comes to chapter 3 and uh, here he has, starts off with some warnings, but he, uh, he begins this, uh, this uh, chapter with this statement. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And I thought it would be good to just take a step back and look at this, this theme that Paul keeps coming back to. And there are nine places in, the, in the, uh, the, the epistle to the Philippians where he talks about rejoicing in the Lord. And uh, we'll just quickly look at them because they're quite instructive in terms of uh, what they tell us about this matter of rejoicing. So if we go to chapter 1 and verse 18, <coughs> chapter 1 and verse 18, he says... Um, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So let's pay attention to what Paul is rejoicing in here. He says that he's rejoicing 
that Christ is being preached. And in the context here, he was talking about some men who were speaking against him or were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. And at the end of that, where he's, he's um, really speaking against these men who are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition and causing division and bitterness. But then he says that it doesn't matter in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, I rejoice. Why? Because Christ is preached. So that was Paul's ultimate mission in life was to ensure that Christ was preached no matter who did it, how it was done. Uh, and in that he rejoices. So he rejoices that Christ is being preached. Next we find in Philippians 2 and verse 16. He says, holding for fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So he's rejoicing at the faith of the believers. He's rejoicing that that uh, that they are holding fast. He's, as he encourages them to hold fast in the, in the word of life. Why? So that he may rejoice in the day of Christ. When Christ comes and he rewards these believers for their walk with him, that would be another reason for him to rejoice. And then verse 17 Uh, He says, yes, if I am being, chapter 2 and verse 17, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. He introduces this notion of rejoicing in the face of suffering. So he rejoices that Christ is being preached, rejoices that believers are strengthened in their faith. He rejoices in the face of his own suffering and exhorts the believers to rejoice in their suffering. And then in 2 and verse 28, uh, again we see the fifth uh, occurrence of rejoice. He says, therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that is he's speaking here about um, Epaphroditus, he said, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. So rejoicing to see a fellow believer, the love between believers, when Paul sees this, he knows that it brings rejoicing to their heart, that they see this, this fellow believer, Epaphroditus, who had gone away from them to minister to Paul and now was returning. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, we just saw rejoice in the Lord, you know, even in the face of all these challenges. And then um, if we come to chapter 3 and verse 3 again, it says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So rejoicing in Christ, he presents as a characteristic of true believers, just like we worship God, right? So what does he say? He's describing the characteristic of a true believer. He says that, um, you know, we are the circumcision who worship God, okay? We worship God in the spirit and we also rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So we are to rejoice. And then uh, chapter Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, again we see the same theme here. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice, a verse that we are all very familiar with. He exhorts him to rejoice at all times in the Lord. And then finally, the ninth occurrence in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, uh, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. So he rejoices at the generosity of the Philippian believers. So what we find here as we look at all these injunctions to rejoice is that is that, you know, for Paul, rejoicing is, is a verb. Uh, joy is, is primarily a verb. It's not an emotion. Uh, it, is not, it is something that we do rather than how we feel. Uh, to rejoice means to verbalize uh, this internal joy that we have, that we are to have as believers. And so rejoicing is something that should characterize as Christians. So as Paul talks about 
the lack of unity and the suffering and the difficulties that they face. He keeps coming back to this theme again. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And sometimes, you know, we, you know, we uh, as believers, you know, we were reminded this morning as we remembered the Lord of the, the, the wonderful privilege that we have, this wonderful standing that we are inside the veil. We are beholding the glory of God. And we of all people ought to be ones who, who live a life of rejoicing. And yet sometimes, you know, when we look at our own lives, we see how sometimes we are depressed. We don't really have joy. Our joy is so dependent on, on circumstances and, and the way things are going and how we feel and our health and our financial status and, and all of these kind of things and what's going on with our children and our spouse. And, but, you know, when we look through scripture, we find, especially in the book of Philippians, the fact that he com- keeps coming back. He talks about something, he addresses some issue and he keeps coming back to this nine times. You know, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. And so we need to examine ourselves as we go through our lives, you know. What is it that characterizes our life? Is, it, is there a joy? Do we really have that internal joy that, that becomes a verb, becomes an action, that we are rejoicing, that we are praising God all the time, that we are thanking Him no matter what is going on in our life, that we can step back and just be joyful in the Lord, rejoice in Him because of what He has done for us, because of who we are in Christ. We have every reason in the world to rejoice and others need ought to see. That's why, you know, in chapter 2 we saw about being lights in the world. You know, when the world sees that we can rejoice in spite of difficult circumstances that everybody goes through, you know, then they can, they can see that light of Christ in us and be drawn to the gospel, which is what, you know, our mission uh, in this life ought to be. We are to rejoice at all times. And so with that injunction, Paul then gets into some serious business here and to understand this we need to understand a little bit of the context of what was going on so you know the uh, the the problem that we see again and again in several of these epistles that Paul is remember Paul is writing to the early church here the church had been formed they had been established and they were slowly growing and and of course they faced many challenges and many problems and Paul here you know he he uses some very strong language he uses the word beware Okay, he's giving them a warning. Uh, and a lot of his epistles are about warning. And, and in this case, he's warning them against what was a common problem in the church of the day. And, uh, you know, maybe this specific problem is maybe not be something we, we, we sp- face today, although we have similar types of problems. But this was the problem of the fact that the early church was a very Jewish church. So we know that the gospel first went out to Jerusalem. And, you know, all the believers, the people who were saved there, were, were, were Jews. There were some people saved on the day of Pentecost who were still Jews who had come from the Gentile lands back into Jerusalem and many of them had gotten saved. They had gone back out to their, uh, to their places where they lived and taken the gospel with them. Um, but there was a big influence of the Jewish community in that early church. All the early church were all, all Jewish people. And so there was this, this tension between you know, obedience to the requirements of the law uh, and, and uh, you know, how does that fit in with the idea of grace and how much freedom we had. And this became, in the early days, it wasn't a big problem because, you know, most of the church were, were Jewish believers. They got saved. They continued to do the Jewish kind of things they did, like being circumcised and maybe observing some of the Jewish customs. But as the church started spreading out, we see in the early church this problem, right? And we see that in Acts uh, where there was a big problem where, where Gentiles uh, were being saved and the, the Jewish uh, 
believers, leaders were coming from Jerusalem and trying to impose uh, their, um, their, uh, their um, uh, customs and their uh, rules and regulations. In fact, at one point we read where Paul, uh, Peter and, uh, and Paul got into a big fight because, uh, you know, Paul, uh, he said, I stood Peter up to his face and I told him because, you know, he was, uh, he was eating with the Gentile believers and eating their, um, their, uh, their food, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the kind of food that Jews wouldn't eat. But as soon as some men came from Jerusalem, Peter hypocritically stopped eating with them and he went back to following his, his Jewish customs and, and, and Paul stood him up to his face and told him he was wrong. And eventually this problem, they went back to the, the church in Jerusalem and they had that council uh, where James and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they, they heard Paul and Barnabas and then they put out that edict and that letter that went out that said, you know, here's, you know, you have the full freedom and they gave them some things that in order to be sensitive to their Jewish believers that they should not do. Uh, but this was a repeated problem in the church and here Paul gets into this problem uh, where he, uh, in, in chapter 2, he uses some strong, verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, beware, and he calls them dogs, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Okay, so uh, this is some pretty strong warnings, right? Sometimes people, I've seen people uh, in some places, they put a, a sign up says, beware of dogs, Philippians 3, 2. Okay, um, uh, have you seen that? Yeah. He said, where's the dog? You know, that's just a Bible verse, you know. Um, but, um, you know, that wasn't the intent here. Paul is using some very strong language to describe these people. He calls them dogs, he calls them evil workers, and he calls them the mutilation. So, from this we know that what was going on there was that um, some of these people were coming into the church, into the Philippian church, which was out there in Europe, and trying to influence them in this area of circumcision, right? So, they were being led astray by these Jewish People were insisting that Gentiles had to follow the requirements of the law, such as circumcision. And Paul says that they are to, <coughs> they are to beware of these people. And this is important for us as a church and as individuals that, you know, that we, have to, we have to always be wary. And why are we to be wary? Because you know, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And today it might not be the mutilation or circumstances or uh, circumcision rather, but, but it is other things that He's constantly looking and we need to be aware of our surroundings. We need to be aware of, uh, of the, the, the circumstances around us to know whether we are being led astray. Sometimes we might be being led astray in the area of false doctrine. Sometimes we're being attracted to various kinds of false gospels and prosperity gospel and things like that. Sometimes we are getting uh, led astray by holding on to practices that, that don't have any meaning. And um, I was just trying to relate this to today's day and age where, you know, sometimes we see this happening where, you know, in this case, these Jewish believers, they had these traditions that they had grown up with from the day they are born, they are steeped in them and, and they had a hard time getting away from it and they assumed that since they were the early church that therefore they had to continue in these things uh, even as, as Christians and they, so they tried to impose it. You know, very often when you go to North India, we can, we can see some of this going on, right? So, you know, the culture is very different and we see people who come from South India, maybe it's even the, the pioneering evangelists who try to impose the cultural practices from the South on these believers in the North. Uh, and it leads to a lot of tension, right? And we try to impose on them things that are really not scriptural. And that's probably one of the analogies we could draw into our, into our modern day here. But Paul tells them to beware of these people. And he says, and he, and he points one thing out. He says, 
um, you know, he explains who are the true believers, okay? And he says the true believers are not the ones who are doing these legalistic things, but he very clearly explains here in verse uh, 2 or verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision, okay? So he says that we are the circumcision. If we go to Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, uh, you know, we see the same thought being expressed again by the Apostle Paul when he's writing to, to the church at Rome, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 28. It talks about circumcision and it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What was circumcision? Circumcision was nothing more than a way for the children of Israel to be separated from the people around them. It was a way to show that they were the the set-apart, sanctified people of God, set-apart for a particular purpose. And in Romans there, the passage that we just read, he's pointing out that, that, you know, being um, the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, 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 the circumcision is really of the spirit and not literal, right? It's of the heart and it has to do with the attitude of the heart. And again, he goes on to say, he says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So three things he says about those who are the true circumcision. One is that we worship God in the spirit. Second, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. There's that term rejoice again. Third, we have no confidence enough in the flesh. That is, we are not relying on our religiosity and our fleshly works to gain favor with God. The genuineness of our faith should never be measured by the outward ritual and legalism, but by what is in our heart, by whether our faith is truly what really drives us. And that's what we want to talk about this morning is, what is it that truly drives us? What is it that makes us do the things we do? I know that many of us have grown up in a certain circumstance. We've grown up doing all these things. We've grown up knowing what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. And very often we try to follow those rules thinking that this is what gives us favor with God. And that is what Paul is speaking about here. And let's just look at this uh, a little more deeply as he goes into verse 4 through 6. He, Paul says in answering these uh, people, the, the Judaizers who are coming and causing problems in the church, he says, you know what? If they think they are great, I am much greater in the flesh. And he points out several things. In uh, verse 4 he says... Uh, Um, from chapter 3 and verse 4 though I also might have confidence in the flesh if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh I more so so he says you know you may think that you are great and you have all these things in the flesh that you can do I have even more and he goes on to list his qualifications he says verse 5 I am circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee concerning zeal persecuting the church Concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. And, and, and what Paul is warning here uh, in this whole passage from verses 2 through 9 is warning against glorying in the flesh. Okay, warning against having confidence in the flesh and thinking that this is what is giving us favor with God. This is what makes us righteous before God. And here he says, look at me. I've got so many things that I can list as my accomplishment. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, I was not like many of you, and I was born into Israel, right? I was born in Israel. I'm of the stock of Israel. 
something the Gentiles could never be. Uh, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, the tribe of Benjamin were the, the two tribes that were the southern tribes was Judah and Benjamin. They stayed with the tribe of Judah. Um, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And then he goes on to say, I was a Pharisee. And a Pharisee means, you know, he was a, uh, he, uh, you know, unfortunately the word Pharisee brings a lot of negative connotations in our mind. But if you go back to that day, the Pharisees were pretty well respected people. Okay. If I were to, to, to compare it, they would be sort of like our theologians of this day. Right. So, so it'll be like, like who, who should I, uh, Ravi Zacharias. Okay. You know, can imagine the respect that he gets because he's well-known theologian. That's the respect that Pharisees had. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, highly learned in the law. And then he says, not only that, I was a zealous persecutor of the church. And then he says, I was blameless as far as the righteousness of the law. You know, if somebody looked at the life of Paul and how well he observed the requirements of the law, he was blameless. They could never find fault with him. And, uh, but then, you know, Paul goes on to look at all of these worldly accomplishments and what does he say? Uh, let's go to verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency, excellence of the knowledge or for the surpassing uh, knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So what does Paul say? He says that all of these pedigree that I have, the fleshly accomplishments, yes, it's a long list. Yes, it's one that demands and receives a a lot of respect. But he says that I count all of these things that were gained as loss for Christ. Verse 7, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And he goes on to use some very strong language. Verse um, There in verse 9, he says, or or verse uh, verse 8, I indeed also count all these things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, meaning I've given up all these things, okay, that by the, by the, by the Jewish mind, by the Jewish point of view, were great things, great things of privilege, and I've count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. I count them as rubbish. The King James, I think, uses the right word. It says I count them as dung, okay, or street filth. It was, it was a very vulgar connotation there you know we all know what this means here if you go around the streets of Bangalore you see all the 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 garbage piling up right and you see cows coming and eating on it and when you go by there you you hold your nose okay that is the image that Paul wants to convey here he says all of these things that I am you know the the circumcised on the eighth day and Israelite of Israelites tribe of Benjamin Hebrew Pharisee a zealous persecutor of the church (coughs) blameless as far as the righteousness of the law, all of these things, I count them as rubbish, I count them as dung, I count them as filthy garbage, because they mean nothing. Why? Verse 8, so that I may gain Christ. And the reason he counts them, the reason he counts them as rubbish is because none of those things could help him to gain Christ. He had to give it all up, because none of those things could bring him to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that he could gain Christ. And why? For the surpassing worth, verse 9, says the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And verse 9 he says, not having my own righteousness, 
which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The only righteousness that will make you accepted in Christ by God is the righteousness that comes through Christ, not the righteousness that comes from my own upbringing or my own pedigree or my own fleshly works. And I want to ask ourselves today, I, I don't know where you stand, but you know, many of us perhaps we've, we've been brought up a certain way and we are relying on the fact that, that we have done all these things, that we have this pedigree, that my great-grandfather was saved and came out of the Jacobite church and, and my, father, my grandfather was you know, a pioneer of the faith and, and uh, you know, he went a missionary to North India, whatever might be the case. You know, we all, uh, you know, those of us who come especially from a brethren church background, we can claim all of these things. You know, how great uh, uh, our uh, lineage is. Uh, but are we relying on any of this for our standing before Christ? You know, why, why are you here? Are you here because you are just continuing that tradition? Because you need a place to go where you can continue to live and do these kind of things that, that continue the, the, the traditional rituals and the requirements. You know, go to church every, every Sunday. You know, get up once in a while. Uh, fellowship with believers. These are all good things. Don't get me wrong. But is that what you are relying on? Your own righteousness. Paul is saying all of this is absolute rubbish. Okay? Uh, are we relying on the faith of our parents or our grandparents as the means for acceptance by God? You know, this is a big trap that many of us can fall into. There might be some here who really are not truly saved. That you have not come to that. That you know, Paul here, he says, I had all of these things. I was a great man. I was respected. I was a teacher of the law. Um, you know, I was faultless. Nobody could look at my life and say that there was anything wrong. There wasn't a ritual that I missed. There wasn't a, a, a requirement that I did not fulfill. But none of that, all of that is rubbish because none of it helped me to gain Christ. And he gives us here the true characteristic of righteousness. What is it? Verse uh, chapter 3 and verse 7 again. Uh, he says, What things were gain I have counted loss for Christ. It, uh, and uh, he, he first of all he counted it as loss and then in verse 8 he says I also count these things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus for whom I have suffered the loss of all things he suffered the loss he gave up all of these things so that he might gain Christ and in verse 9 he says that I might be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. The only righteousness that God accepts is the one that he gives us in Christ. When we trust in Christ, and it says there in verse 9, that I may be found, beginning of verse 9, that I may be found in him. What does it mean to be found in him? Who is the him there? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. To be found in him means that when God looks at us, he sees us in Christ. Because if he looks at us without Christ, all he sees is our right, our our filthy rags, he sees our unrighteousness, he sees our sin and we cannot be accepted. But when he looks at us in Christ, that, that, uh, that if he finds us in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is through faith in Christ and, and this is something that's obtained by God, uh, only from God and it's obtained by faith and it requires us to be found in him, be found in Christ. God has to see us through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his work on the cross and to know that we have trusted in what Christ has done for us on the cross in order to be accepted by God. So let me ask you, uh, before we move on to the next section, to really look into your heart and, 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 and you know, if there's anyone here who you're relying on your tradition, you're relying on your pedigree, you're relying on your church 
background and you can't give all of that up that you're here only because you think this is the way forward, this is the cultural way to go, this is the way that you get accepted or this is the way that you can get married or whatever might be the case, you know, because you don't want to upset your parents. You know, uh, none of that, you know, all of that Paul says is rubbish. It is dung. It is garbage. Uh, and it, it means nothing. Uh, and, 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 and the, uh, you know, as he says here, we have to have that righteousness in Christ. We have to come and regard all of this as nothing. Push it aside. Get the garbage out and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. And that is what uh, Paul is warning them against. He says, do not glory in the flesh for there is no, nothing to glory about. Because if you glory in the flesh, if that is what you're relying on, then you have no hope in the life to come. And you have no hope in the presence of God. And then he goes on to talk about the purpose of the Christian life, verses 10 to 14. And it's a beautiful passage, one of the most beautiful passages in, in, the, in the epistles. Verse 10, let's read that. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is the purpose of the Christian life? Why have we been saved? If you are not relying on these other things and you are truly saved, what is the purpose of this righteousness, of this salvation? And he says it very clearly, it is to know him. He says, I have been saved through the righteousness of Christ, not by my own righteousness. And he says, why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. It is to know Christ. The ultimate goal of being in a right relationship with God is to know Christ, to have that intimate relationship with him. That is what the Christian life is about. That is what leads to the works that we do. That is what leads to service because as we get to know Christ more and more intimately, then we desire to serve him. And this is a question we all ought to ask ourselves. How well do we know the Lord? Do we know him more intimately today than we did a year ago or four years ago or ten years ago? And he gives us three things here about what knowing Christ means. In verse uh, 10, that I may know him And what does that mean? It means to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and being conformed to his death. To know the power power of his resurrection. The power that comes to believers on the basis of Christ's resurrection. It guarantees our own resurrection unto eternal life. It gives us hope. Do you have that hope? You know, as you get to know the Lord more, that power of his resurrection gives you hope. Secondly, to share in his sufferings, to suffer on behalf of Christ is a purpose for which we are saved. It is what allows us to really get to know him. He suffered because of our sins. When we suffer, we identify with him and we get to know him more intimately. And then he goes on to say, to be conformed to his death. Christ suffered for us to the point of death. When we suffer for him, we are being conformed to his death. You know, how much suffering have we gone through in our life? You know, if you want to know a Christian who really knows Christ, you will find that it's those who have suffered, who have been through suffering in their lives that can really, that really understand Christ in a much more deeper way. And that is why, you know, suffering is not something we, we, we turn away from. It's something that, that, that we ought to accept and we ought to be molded by it so that we may know Christ. And that is what Paul, we know all the suffering that Paul went through. I don't have time to read all those verses being shipwrecked and being beaten and left to die and all of these things. You know, he talks about it in other epistles. But here he rejoices in that suffering. And he says that 
by going through the suffering, this is how I am getting to know him. This is the purpose for which I have been saved. And then he says to, so that if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's looking ahead to the hope that he has. The certainty, uh, the glorious hope. It is not a matter of doubt, although the words seem to indicate that way. But later on he talks about being translated. You know, the, the only doubt is whether you'll get translated or you'll die and get resurrected. And that is what he's talking about there. But ultimately that is the hope we have, that we will be with Christ. We will be in this glorified body. But in order to know him in this life, we have to know the power of his resurrection. We have to share in his sufferings. And, um, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, my, my, my late wife, when, when she would go through so much pain and suffering in her life, uh, she always said something that I found hard to grasp at the time. But she would always go through this pain and sometimes complain about the pain. But then at the end of it, she'll say, you know what? It, it helps me to understand what the Lord went through for me. And it's only later that I begin to understand what that meant. That is the, the, the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, that is what, what really molds us and makes us, uh, helps us to grow as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, after talking about this, he gives, talks about the importance of pressing on. Verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, this is such a beautiful picture of what our Christian life ought to be. You know, it is not about accumulating wealth. It is not about accumulating worldly wisdom. It is not about, um, you know, having a good job. It's not about uh, being somebody in the world. But it is about pressing on for that upward call to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of me. What has Christ Jesus laid hold of us for? He has laid hold of us so that he might conform us to his own image. And we are to lay hold. It's our part again coming in, right? His part and our part. We are to lay hold of what he has laid hold of us for. And, he's, and, it, and Paul makes it clear here that he says that it's not that I've already attained. I do not count myself to have apprehended. I have not made it there. And we may never get to that destination in this life. But what are we to do? Are we to be discouraged because of that? No, we are to press on. And that is the message that Paul has for us here this morning. That we are to forget the things which are behind. Our pedigree, our uh, accomplishments, even our failures. We might have fallen many, many times into sin. But we are to forget that. We are to stop focusing on the past. And we are to look forward to the future. Keep pressing on. You know, uh, there's a beautiful song. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Are you moving up? Are you gaining new heights? Is your life further up? you know, on, that, on that, that upward path than it was yesterday and the day before. When God issues our upward call into his presence, then we will finally reach that goal. But while we are in this life, we are to share in the fellowship of his sufferings and that helps us to, to press on toward that goal. Are we pressing on towards the price? You know, I don't know what you're going through, um, you know, uh, but um, knowing him. You know, let me just read a verse from... Uh, from uh, 1 John 2 verse 3 through 6, it says, Now by this we know that we know him, that we know Christ, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, 
and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You know, when we know Christ more, we will walk like him. We will live in obedience to him. We don't do that to gain favor with God, but we do that because we get to know Christ, because we have that intimate knowledge, that intimate relationship with the Lord, because we are pressing on. Where are you in your Christian walk? Maybe, you know, you're just um, sort of muddling along. You know, you look at your life, there is not much growth. That is not the life that God has called us to. That is not the purpose of your Christian life. Your purpose of, of your life and my life is not... Uh, the same purpose that the world has. You know, it's not just to go to college and get a degree and get a job and be comfortable and get married and have children and just keep going on this cycle again and again. No, it is to know Christ. It is to know Him more. It is for Him to become more and more real in our life. It is for us to go through suffering. And and when we talk about suffering, (coughs) you know, uh, it is amazing how, how the Lord can use suffering you know, to mold us, but also to reach other people. You know, I was with uh, with Brother Rebbe on Friday, and we were talking to this young girl who was going through some 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 serious issues in her life, and we were just battling. And she was talking about all these problems that she's having and how she can't deal with it, and and all that. And 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 we were thinking, you know, what what do we say to her? And then, you know, he started talking about the sufferings that he has been through in his life. How, as a one-year-old child of his had leukemia and, uh, and he, he went on to talk about it and you could just see uh, you know, something going on in her mind as she heard about this to point out that you know, suffering is a part of life. You know, suffering, you know, we go through suffering but we have to look ahead and, and God uses the suffering in our life to mold us but also to minister to other people and we really cannot grow in the Christian walk without sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we are being called to. That is how we get to know him. And we have to press on. No matter what is holding us. You know, look at all the things in, uh, in Hebrews 12. You know, in, uh, we can just look at that in, in closing. In Hebrews 12, um, he talks about the, the, uh, the entanglements. Uh, he talks about running the race with endurance. Hebrews 12 and verse one, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is again the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? He says, let us... Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles. You know, Paul is talking about pressing on the upward way. Very often we look at our own life, we find that not only are we not pressing on, we are regressing, we are going backwards, we are falling into sin because we are not pressing on. Perhaps we don't even know the Lord. We need to examine our own hearts uh, and and to see what is our life really characterized by. What are we really relying on? Why do we even bother to come here? Is it because we think we're meeting, you know, checking off some, some box somewhere? Or do we truly have the righteousness of Christ? And if we truly have the righteousness of Christ, we will have this desire to know Him. Are we focused and pressing to know Christ more and more? Are we sharing in His sufferings? 
Or are we just living the ordinary life, focusing on everything but the Lord Jesus Christ? How important is it to you, your relationship with Christ? Is it the most important thing in your life? This is the purpose for which God has saved us. And maybe each examine our lives and to see what it is that the Lord would have us do differently so that we may press on this upward way. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for reminding us again of what you have called us to, Lord, that we are your children, that we have been saved for a purpose, and that is to press on, Father, to not give up, to not go backwards, but to press on up that mountain, Lord, and to press on until we attain, Lord, until you call us home with that upward call. We thank you for the wonderful hope that we have. We thank you for the strength that you give us by the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. We cannot do any of this in our own power. Yet, Lord, I want to pray. I want to pray for each one here who may not be on this path, who may not be pressing upwards, Lord, who may be going backwards, perhaps. Maybe they have sin in their lives. Maybe they have lost that first love, Father, as the church in Ephesus did. We pray, Lord, that these words would draw them back, that they may not be relying on these uh, fleshly things, Lord, their background, their pedigree, their achievements, their standing in the world to gain favor with you, but rather they would be looking deep within to see if they really have this love for the Lord Jesus, if they really know the Lord and they are growing in their knowledge of him. I pray, Lord, that you will bring suffering into our lives that will mold us, Lord, and draw us closer to you and strengthen us in our faith so that we may truly experience what the Lord Jesus Christ went through for us so that we might be molded into his image. I pray, Lord, that you will give us the strength through all this and pray that we as individuals and as a church, Lord, might continue to grow in your grace day in and day out. We want to praise you and thank you again, Father, for your word. Pray that it will minister to each heart in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.